With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Michael Bailey. I'm joined here today by the very lovely JJ Ball. Hello, Michael. There he is. Hello. And yes. also John McKenzie. Hello, John. Hello. Am I not very lovely? Oh, uh, well, it wasn't deliberate. Bad start. Bad yes. start for Michael. This isn't going as well as the last time I did it already. John, I think you're lovely. Oh, thanks, mate. Excellent. Job done. I uh, don't. <laughs> we, are, we are swiftly moving on to talk about all of the football. We've got loads of Premier League football like Tottenham, Newcastle, Chelsea, Manchester United, Leeds, Aston Villa, Southampton Forest and more. I don't think there's many other clubs left. We're also going to drop into Serie A, which is Italian. And we might even look ahead to the Champions League week fixtures, but maybe we won't. We'll see. Bit of mild peril there. You will see lots of writing on all of those subjects if you subscribe to The Athletic. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, well, that's okay, because you can do so for free for a 30-day trial. All you need to go to is theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. That is theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Uh, we were going to be joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor today. But we're not for technical gremlins. We call them gremlins. His gates, are, unfortunately, are not good. Gremlins <laughs> stormed the gates. <laughs> Literally blamed the gates. Being held so, hostage by gremlins. The gates are locked. Seb is out. We shall carry on without him. Let's get on with the show. This is us getting on with the show. And we're going to do that by stopping off firstly at Tottenham Hotspur 1-2 Newcastle United. That's how you do the scores, isn't it? It winds me up no end, but yes, that's how I feel you like I couldn't, it. you know, not do it like that. Mm. Well, well Joe is not here, so you can do what you like. It's in the, it's in the style guide now. <laughs> we have one. Um, Joe really isn't here either, is he? Last time I did this, he was sort of loitering. Yeah. Taking care. He's led the Gremlins to storm Seb's gates. <laughs> Well, he didn't. He wasn't sure where he was going to go, was he? So maybe... He likes goblins and all that Lord of the Rings stuff, so I think he's just embraced the chaos. I, li- I look forward to seeing that uh, play out. Anyway, Tottenham uh, lost at home to Newcastle. Newcastle are good, JJ, which I think you said last week as well. And they scored two goals. How yeah. did they score two goals at Tottenham? Well, I think Newcastle were very good in this game. And Spurs, there's a little bit of a disconnect, not a disconnect, but a bit of unrest between the fans and Antonio Conte. They play in a set way. They knew how Newcastle would play. But I think Newcastle were like far and away the better team in this game. Looked really aggressive, really intense, all that sort of stuff we've been talking about. We covered it in Tifo IRL as well recently in, in a video. First goal is one of those controversial ones where you can say that the goalie, well, it, I mean, it's a referee decision, but it's been decided now. I don't think we should really waste time unless it's you never think a it, foul. It's never a foul. No, no, no. no, no. Agree. We're agreed. No foul. No foul. No foul. Play on. Yes, play on. Uh, I don't know what really to, to talk about this because we know, we know what Newcastle 
do. Then they do it very well at the moment. A few injury problems that they've sort of got, but they're they're covering them really well. Like, like Joe Linton played on the left side as a forward. Now he's not to, to try and be a goal scorer. He's there much as a, as a pressing machine to try and win the ball back and stop Spurs getting up that side. I think Bruno Gimaraes was a. This is phenomenal. You see how much he runs that game in this one particularly. But Spurs have a problem because they've changed their shape to like a three-five-two, and it means they've got less coverage of the front. So the front press is different now. There's lots of space either side of the front too to play around. And Newcastle were playing around that. And uh, they were managing to keep them kind of quiet. The, the wing backs couldn't push forward as much as they wanted to, and it caused structural issues for Spurs and how they want to pass out from the back. And uh, I think what was interesting about it really at the end was that Antonio Conte was speaking about how obviously this is bad and they get beaten by Man United as well. But he says this is the start of the process, and that in his experience, his great experience of winning stuff with other teams who have very good players, what he sees in the Spurs team as a team is at the beginning of a process. But he's been there quite a while now. <laughs> So, but they, they've signed a lot of players now. So, I guess it's the first sort of proper. They spent money this summer. Finally, they got Richarlison and people like that. But they were missing key individuals as well for this. That like Richarlison was missing. Who else was not in this starting lineup? Kulusevski's out, and he's like one of the, probably their most important player at the moment. Well, I mean that's an exaggeration. There's Kane and Son, or whatever. But he makes them so much better going forward and in how they press in the front. And without Richarlison and Kulusevski, they then can't play that shape they want to play. So Conte's had to adapt. And that's sort of where we're at. And then uh, Newcastle, great. Yeah, I mean, Spurs scored their goal from a corner, I think. They're very good at set pieces. That's what they excel at. But they are lacking an intensity that Newcastle have. And Antonio Conte's teams are meant to play with that sort of intensity. So if you sit back and want to hit people on the counter, I think you've got to have a real aggression about you. Otherwise, it starts to look very dull. Spurs to me seem like they sort of wake up at moments and look very lively. But the rest of it, they're almost incredibly passive and they're like waiting for something or or just not engaged which i guess as a as a supporter which we'd ask seb but seb's not here so john you're the supporter <laughs> of tottenham you know if if you see the team slightly disengaged or waiting for something then that can sort of affect those who are watching yeah i think this is a play style issue in many respects so the thing that antonio conte is trying to do is essentially build up deep, draw opposition presses forward and then generate space around his really elite strike pairing or, or front three if Kulosevsky's playing. And I, I think what we're starting to see is teams becoming aware of how to deal with that. And there's a number of different ways that you can deal with that. But what I've seen happening a lot against Spurs recently is teams just not engaging with their defenders when they have the ball. So, for example, yesterday Newcastle were quite happy to let the back three have possession. And they were making sure that the ball wasn't getting into the central midfield areas and they were trying to slow the build up down in those sorts of those sorts of areas. And I think that that starts to become an issue. If you can be really aggressive in the midfield areas, you can be quite passive in the, in the on the first line of the press. You can cause Spurs lots of problems. It happened uh, against Manchester United as well. They did a, a fairly similar thing, albeit they actually went quite aggressive with their forward line of the press. So they went player for player um, on the on the front line and just tried to cause Spurs problems in their build-up in that way and it, it worked as well so it's becoming I guess a mantra for teams playing against Spurs if you can stop them doing their build-up then you can prevent them from being able to get the ball into those forward spaces onto their um, dangerous dangerous players and yeah the big question is going to be like how do you deal with that as Antonio Conte because it can't just simply be the case that he has to say well you know <laughs> 
that that's that's our play style done he will have to think of different ways of of, of building up maybe different structures that will allow him to to get around these sorts of problems and maybe yeah maybe even uh, have to rethink uh, about how successful this sort of approach can be in the Premier League and their squad as well because they're trying to then compete like they're third now right before as we're talking they're third yep. I think yeah the Chelsea and Man United both have games in hand that which I think would take them ahead so right. it's quite close right so then because the squad's not massive like I think the thing that Conte's talking about with the process is that they're trying to when you when they buy players now they're going to buy players who should be good enough for the first team which then makes your squad bigger and better because you've got basically rivals for each position which is something Spurs have not really had they've had a first team and then backup players who aren't great because it's very hard to sign players and uh, like a, a striker to cover for Harry Kane you're not going to get one because they're going to go why would I go to you I'm not going to play because Kane's there um, but then you've got Son, Kulisevsky uh, and Richarlison. They're all kind of going for the same positions, a bit of competition. That's really good. But when they miss Hoiberg, who's probably the most important player in the middle of the pitch, and uh, and Romero, who is what makes them have that aggression and that real character at the back, they're not the same team. Like Teams with small squads, it's very obvious that any team losing their best players is going to struggle a little bit. You saw it with Liverpool when Van Dijk was out a couple of seasons ago and people like that, um, and Fabinho. With with Spurs losing Hoiberg and Romero, it just makes them weaker because they need to have those players. Otherwise, they are just where they were before, a slightly weaker team. And then when Newcastle are pressing them, it's when you start to see the errors creeping, like Eric Dyer playing a couple of weak passes, Hugo Lloris maybe not quick enough off his line when the ball goes. So the first goal that Callum Wilson scores was the controversial one where the ball's put over the top by Fabian Schar. Newcastle know that Spurs are going to push out a little bit, and as they're coming back, Schar hits over the top. Wilson breaks off side trap. And Lloris is a bit is maybe out of position, maybe not slow, but out of position, and doesn't rush to close it down. Then he tries to chest it down, and that's where the goal comes from because he's not done probably what he should have done there. What's the second goal? It's Almiron scores it, isn't it? Oh, Miggy! Yeah. <laughs> now there is someone who is just finding a different level. I've, I've moved it on now to Newcastle. Good Spurs, but you know, it's, it's right. Spurs are third. You know they'll, they'll be all right <laughs> in the context. But Miggy, well, the, the question's been asked to how is whether. Almiron's the different player this season because he's more confident because when he was signed for MLS for a lot of money the idea was that he's really quick and really explosive and can do all these sorts of things and he's been quite um, medium for ages never really done anything in and out of the team no, doesn't produce anything but now suddenly when they're playing with that intensity with a team backing up behind him he can help with the counter press and with pressing and he absolutely does in as it long he goes past just does him on the outside to then square up onto his left foot to put it past Lloris. I think another poor bit of goalkeeping from Hugo Lloris. We've talked about this before. I think Seb said as well, uh, some of my friends are Spurs fans and they think Hugo Lloris is not up to up to standard. Done, maybe. He's a France captain though, and he? he must be. Well, just, you know, don't get fouled outside yeah. your, your box is a good starting point for any goalkeeper. Really. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Almiron, I mean, let's be honest, he was ridiculed by his own peers at Manchester City for presumably running very quickly and not producing much end product. So maybe that's had a effect. I think whenever you talk about players improving, a lot of the time you have to be aware of the context changing as well, because obviously Miguel Almiron is playing in a much better system than he was uh, previously. He's yeah. got a manager who's developed a structure that allows him to do things. He's got players that are closer than 40 yards away from him yeah, at any given time. Yeah, exactly. And I've, uh, this is something that I found interesting thinking about a team like Arsenal, for example, because people are talking about uh, Martinelli has made the leap this this season. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I think that Martinelli has improved, but I also think that the structure has allowed 
him to to play in ways that that are going to suit his upside. So I'm always sort of a, a little bit hesitant to say like, oh, this player just suddenly got better because it, it may well be just that the system <laughs> like has got better. Bit. I like that way. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, you know, much like Newcastle closing in on Spurs in the table, I suppose is sort of how that conversation's just gone just there. But uh, for context, Newcastle are third, and New- no, Newcastle are fourth, good start, on 21 points, 12 games played. Spurs are third with 23 from 12. Uh, Chelsea and Manchester United do both have a game in hand. So yeah. you're all correct. Well done. Um, taking it back to Tottenham, because that's what uh, Steve has instructed here on the list of questions. Why is Conte not adapting to different teams, JJ? Or, or, or is he? Um, I don't think it's that he's not a, a, adapting. It's that he has a system that he likes. He prefers that 3-4-3. Three, three. I think it's to do with how you can press from the front if you want to press higher. You can't really... Like if you have a front two, you mostly use it as a block to show the ball wide. So then you should be able to then uh, put pressure on teams and maybe a more of a mid-block by pushing the wing-backs up so you can get them at a certain point in the pitch. You're basically setting traps with the front two as a block. But it also means I mean, you, you, want, you want to get your best players on the pitch. You want to get Son and Kane playing. If you want to play a front two and uh, the, the way you get support with width and the way that Conte wants to play, it doesn't suit a back four. Although he did change during this game to, uh, I think it was a 4-2-3-1 sort of shape, wasn't it, later on in the game? And um, to try and get back into it. So he is sort of adapting, but... I mean, there's, there's an element of whether people know how Spurs play so well now and if they don't play at the full intensity, if they don't play with all their best players and they're not good enough to quite break a lot of these teams down. But they are third. Like they are, okay, I think it's quite boring to watch because if you're not, I think when you are talking earlier about like they don't seem engaged a lot of the time. It's a lot of the time when you watch a like, football game and you're a fan, you're like, close them down, <laughs> go and get that, like make that stuff happen. When the manager wants you to sit off a bit because it actually is it's beneficial to you because it creates space in behind so you can play longer passes for Kane or Son and then suddenly the wing-backs push up then the rest of the team gets up together and you can do it like Newcastle do it all the time uh, they, they force the ball into into space they chase it up it's quite chaotic but because they then counter-press and win it quite high it looks good and Newcastle aren't a team who want to dominate possession right now well they keep a lot of possession but they're not based on positional play and trying to work lovely triangles all the time it's about a lot of intensity getting it forward creating chances through that Whereas Spurs, I don't know, they have to create somehow because the midfield isn't hugely creative. A lot of the chances will come from wide areas or Kane dropping in to supply for someone else. And if Kane's dropping deep, who's the striker? Son Heung-min, who's not playing, he's not, he's not in total red-hot form. So that becomes a bit of a problem as well. And they're missing other players. They're all right. That's the thing, they're fine. But like Conte will be looking at this and going, fans are getting a bit fed up with it now. It's I'm still not competing for the title uh, I need another three, four transfer windows to properly make this a team that could compete for the Champions League or the Premier League. And then you've got to sign the right players, not lose anyone else along the way. And maybe there'll be a job at Juventus coming up soon. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Well, apart from the Juventus bit, but definitely the transfer windows. He did exactly say that. Was so that right? uh, yeah, yeah why, why not? I, I did bump into Tim Spears on the way in and he said they'd won their last 10 home games to Tottenham and yet the atmosphere on Sunday. Well, was these a- things turn so quickly, right? Because... Spurs are all right, which is a couple of bad results, losing to Man United and the whatever the narrative around them is at the moment, and then Newcastle are a really good team as well. But Newcastle are great. We're going to cover that uh, off by just of the, saying they're great. I think part of the problem with with the way that Spurs play in the Premier League is that there are so many really elite teams in the Premier League that when you're trying to in- encourage oppositions to push forward, the problem is is you can get bogged down around your own box. And this is what we saw with Manchester United. Like the, the Spurs allowed. Manchester United to progress the ball forward to the edge of the area. Okay, Manchester United had a lot of 
very sort of speculative efforts from around the edge of the box. And normally that's fine. But I think the, the more elite teams have just got better finishers. And, and so the, the problem is then is that you're allowing a huge amount of possession to the opposition and the, the payoff should be, well, we're generating space that we can try and get in behind. But if they're going to pick up a couple of goals from, you know, the edge, of the, the edge of the box, just from you giving them space there, then you've got a lot of work on your hands to, to try and claw that back. So I wonder whether or not, like, moving from Serie A to the Premier League, there's, there's maybe um, league, league effects that are, that are at play here, which I think a lot of people will say, oh, here we go, someone talking about the Premier League being the best league in the world. But the, the fact of the matter is the talent level in, in the league is, I think, higher. And there are teams who can cause problems in a way that I don't think Conte's really had to, to deal with at this it, level. They were in the league with Chelsea, though. I mean, then they were, he probably turned them around midway through <clears> the season. And- yeah, but if you go back and have a look at that season, and look at the teams that they were beating like incredible to compare what the Premier League was back then to what it is now so it, there's a run of games where he's playing like West Brom Swansea Stoke Burnley like lots and lots of I mean what they're a bad team the 2015 I think was it? yeah Norwich right in the Premier Round League so. <laughs> uh, oh, I they're beating them um, I blame the auto- automatism, auto- automatisms but that's for another day and, and someone <laughs> else uh, speaking of Manchester United and Antonio Conte's former clubs are we doing that? I think we were. Uh, Chelsea won one. Manchester United was the scoreline at Stamford Bridge. Now, this was this was uh, quite uh, a slow burner, uh, maybe. But it, anyway, uh, Graham Potter did make a tactical change after about 35 minutes, quite precise. Uh, what was that and why did it make a difference, John? Yeah, so Graham Potter put Chelsea out in the regular sort of 3-4-3-ish um, formation that that he likes to do and very quickly became obvious that it wasn't working Manchester United were able to I think dominate in a in a couple of phases they, they were able to build up quite comfortably for various reasons so they had two Chelsea had two midfielders because they were playing a 3-4-3 and what they were trying to do is they were trying to match up against Manchester United's three midfielders by doing what I like to call hybrid pressings so that's when you you basically bring in other players to cover in that central midfield area in certain phases of play uh, and the idea is, is that you're supposed to move comfortably when the ball changes into a different phase you can then you can sort things out so that there's never a free midfielder the problem is it's, it can be quite complicated to do and, and so what was happening is that Manchester United particularly Ericsson was finding a bit of space and Manchester United were able to just progress the ball forward quite quite comfortably the other thing that was happening was that Manchester United were pressing player for player against Chelsea's back line essentially they had a front three against Chelsea's back three uh, and then the rest of the players were matching up one to one to one across the, the the front lines pretty much and it was causing Chelsea a, a degree of problems I mean Chelsea did break the press I think the first line of pressure and we're getting the ball to Azpilicueta but then it was breaking down around there so Basically, Graham Potter just changed his formation so that both of those issues went away. He took out uh, a, uh, one of the centre-backs, took off Kukurea around the 35th, 36th minute, and brought in Kovacic and moved Kovacic into the centre so they had an extra player in midfield and it meant that they were then playing with a back four. So Manchester United's front three didn't really match up as well. So it was easier to build up for Chelsea from the back because they were able to have overloads in certain areas and also they weren't giving Manchester United the sort of space that they had in midfield. So yeah, you said a slow burner, it was, but tactically fairly interesting game I think he's good isn't he Graham Potter like I mean that that is him affecting a game you know he's still early in his reign but he's 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 settling in and he feels looks like comfortable confident good at his job uh, all we, those things we don't always see in managers hey? yeah it seems to be it's going very well for him just now I mean the, the other side of that coin you could if you've been really skeptical you could say well he should have got it right from the start you should be able to know what Man United would do but good point. I think affecting the games like that is really obviously that's very important to do with it 
But John's covered Chelsea quite a lot in Tifo IRL. You can see it on YouTube and done a lot of the stuff that Potter's already influenced at Chelsea. And I think one of the signs that he's a good coach is that you can clearly see differences in what Potter's Chelsea are doing now to what the other chap, Tuchel, was <laughs> doing him, before. Gone, gone, already forgotten poor Thomas. Yeah, he's just gone. <laughs> oh, no. I wonder what he's doing now. Anyone know what he's doing now? He was spotted in India recently. Oh, that's where I'd go. Hmm. wonder where. I think I know. Well, we'll keep waiting until you uh, tell I, us. I, maybe I don't know. Sorry. No, Steve, you need to go, literally leave and go and find out where Thomas Ducal in India is in India, please. JJ, what were you saying? Uh, before well, in this chat? game, we saw a right-footed shot or touch from Anthony, which is, I think, listening to you. the first time I've seen him use his right foot. And I'm not trying to exaggerate for <laughs> comedy. I really think he just doesn't use it. It's a, it was a bit of a problem. It looked like a few weeks ago when he would drive up the right wing and then the, the way you would get the ball into the box because of the way you're running has to be right foot, curl it in. But he just cannot do it. So he'd use it outside of his left foot while running, which is crazy. It's crazy technique. It doesn't work. Um, you can obviously do that. I can't remember the word for it. What is it when you play the ball at the outside of your boot? There's a word for it. You use it in Peru. Tra- Travella. Travella, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Or Travella, maybe. I don't know. Probably. Uh, um, Travago. That's not the Spanish <laughs> no, yeah. I learned in the north. Anyway, so England. I call it Swaz. Carry on. Yeah, that works. Charisma used to do it a lot, didn't it? Yeah. So he's trying to do that. Sometimes it's okay, but he has to cut back all the time and that slows it down. As soon as you cut back, you allow teams a couple of seconds to get back in shape and the chance is often gone. But you can see it. He gets in behind. Kepa is slightly too far to the left positioned. He's got most of the goal to aim at. I think he should have been able to score in that big open space, but he bends it wide right with his right foot. So at least he's trying with the right foot and they'll maybe see him developing. But the thing is, if you're like, how old is Anthony? He's like 22 or something like that. Because you you gather you gather your technique and you're pretty much the technical finished player by the time you're about eighteen. <laughs> the other stuff that comes with game management and learning to read situations that's the experience that makes players better. But can you suddenly learn to use your right foot? He's right. got all week. Every he's week. a brilliant player on his left foot. This thing, it's loads of training time. I'm not trying to sl- like I'm not trying to say he's not a good player. I think he's amazing, Anthony. Like, I like watching him at Ajax. He's great in the Champions League. It's just that's so odd to be so one footed that level. Like even like lots of left foot players have been very one footed and just lean into that, but he's very much, especially from a wide area as well. Like yeah. If a defender is coming up against him, they know that to show him down the right, it probably makes their task a little bit easier. But I do think Anthony's sort of good good enough on the ball to be able to cut inside and do it anywhere. Right? I, think I mean, that was the thing with, with Robin, yeah. wasn't it? Like Robin yeah. was very one footed, but he and and, and the, the joke was always like, you know exactly what he's going to do, and he does it anyway. So I guess he just has to become very adept at doing that I mean like even like Riyad Mahrez is quite one-footed but he can use his right an awful lot as well I mean he's not one-footed he's, he's far more ambidextrous is that what you're putting ambifootstress ambifootstress yes I mean we the longer this conversation goes on the, the harder it's going to be to resist mentioning Wes Houlihan so let's Wes Wesley uh, thank you John yeah. I'm a Excellent. massive fan of Wes. Oh, obviously, because you've seen him Let's play. Let's talk about Wes Houlihan. Oh, wow. Don't tempt me, John. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, we didn't get to talk about um, Graham Potter looking good. Let's not talk about that because he just does look good. It's absolutely fine. But we probably should... You know, United are, it's coming together, isn't it? There, there's, there's elements there where, I mean, let's be honest, it looked like a bit of a, bit of a wreck at the start of the season and, and it's much more coherent. Manchester United are really interesting, I think, because... Yes. Good start. The, the thing that you have to remember with Manchester United is that they are set up to play in a certain way, but they want to play in a different way. And so they have a little bit of a Jekyll and Hyde approach to a lot of games, right? So some games they can come out and play 
a really transitional football where they're sitting a little bit deeper. They're they're looking to not concede, and then and then so they've beaten um, certain teams doing that, right? They've beaten Arsenal by by playing in that way. They beaten Liverpool. Liverpool did they beat Liverpool? They beat someone else yes, playing that way. They did beat Liverpool, but they also want to be able to beat the smaller teams, and you can't. As, as Manchester United, you can't sit deep and, and try and counter against smaller teams because they're not they're not going to try and possess the ball. So, um, what we're seeing is 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 Ten Hag trying to get them to a situation where they can where they can do um, this more possessional football, like you would expect more elite sides to be to be able to do. And so, at the moment, like there's there's some games where Manchester United are looking good, and there's other games where they're not looking as good. And the big question is like, what's the difference between them? And I think that the, the difference is just being, being able to code switch between those two different ways of, of, of playing. And um, the last couple of games, I think have been really promising for Manchester United because they've come up against teams where they've been able to maybe play in the, in the more progressive way that they might want to in future, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So uh, I mentioned the Spurs game, Manchester United were, were good in that game, but um, I, I feel as though, Spurs did very little to stop Manchester United from building up. And I think we've seen teams this season cause them problems in build-up phases. So the Brentford game, for example, is one where Brentford were, were quite aggressive in their pressing uh, and it caused Manchester United problems and they, and they actually lost the game on that basis. So I think that the Spurs game, for example, they were able to progress the ball to the end, ed, edge of the penalty area. And then the big question is like, how are you generating chances? And that I think has been true of, of, a, of a number of games. I mean, Manchester United did the same against Ammonia in the um, in the Europa League where they were able to progress the ball quite well. But when it came to like the final third, it was maybe, they, they were maybe struggling uh, at least in the first half to, to to generate any sorts of good chances. So that's where I'm at with Manchester United now. It's, it's sort of, if you can cause them problems in certain areas. So for example, like if you can stop them from building up, like how good are they? And then once you get to the final third, like how good are they at generating those really good repeatable chances that will mark them out as being a, a very good side? But the same is true of, of Chelsea. It's worth saying like Chelsea undertook all the big question was like, OK, they can progress the ball forward well, but once they get into the final third, they're just not dangerous enough. And I think there's there's still questions to be asked of, of whether or not Graham Potter can overcome those problems too. Well, there was a bit, um, I think Laurie Whitwell wrote in The Athletic, The Athletic, uh, theathletic.com forward slash Tifa today <laughs> what do you say how um, well, one of the things that Ten Hag wants to do is for his team to create from midfield so not from deep not relying on that counter-attack not counter-attack but that sort of long ball basically like I remember talking to a couple of managers in the past and asked them about their style of play and what they wanted to do and what they've said is that they, like why I've asked them like, why are you why are your defenders shelling it over the top to no one it looks like, like you can't be what you want them to do and uh, they say, oh, and they said, yeah. They say, I get this all the <laughs> yeah. time. Well, it's like it's not that. You need to look, look for where the space is. Where is the space? Often it's behind the back line. Often it's wide. You put the ball in the space. You can gain territory. It's like like rugby. Push up, chase it. Newcastle do this oh. and chase it up, and you can get the ball. You can pin a team into a certain area, and you build from a, a higher position. Like United right now, what I saw against Newcastle was they really struggled to play out from the back. I, I don't know if it's players just not quite sure where everyone is supposed to be at certain times. Players like I think Diogo Dallo. Seems like a decent player, but his passing, if you watch, sometimes his angle is just slightly off and it really causes issues for other teammates. Like, it'll, it'll be recorded as a successful pass, but sometimes his passing is a little bit loose, things like that. You even get little players making mistakes, especially under pressure, and that's one of the, the, the problems where they got kind of building out from the back. But we saw against Spurs, some of that positional rotation, especially in the midfield, was really working and they were able to press higher up, especially without having Ronaldo in the team. Mm. Like that's one of the reasons oh, I think we were doing against... so well. I but it, we were going to get away with One of the reasons they were so good against Spurs, genuinely, is because Ronaldo wasn't in the team so they could press from the front in the way they want to. 
And it's not a relentless, intense press, but they can cover certain angles. The goalkeeper gets closed down when he needs to. Last time I saw Ronaldo play, he was letting the goalkeeper have the ball for as long as he wanted to. It's Newcastle, I think it was. But then he scored. And then it was disallowed. Yeah, but it doesn't. I mean, you score one goal, but you, your team concedes two. Like, there's a number, huge numbers that show the amount of games they win without and win with. It's like when you play at five a side and you've got a guy who scores you like five goals a game. He's amazing. He's all dribbles. He's so good. But your team still loses because all he does is stays in the corner at the top of the pitch. Happens all the time. So you need a bit, it's all about the team. And I think Ten Hag's really got this. And it, like part of management isn't just the tactics or you know that sort of stuff. It's about managing the dressing room and the club and like your role within it. And the way he's managing Ronaldo now is very difficult to do because Ronaldo is a big deal and Ten Hag isn't quite just yet. So that's quite complicated, especially when you've then got loads of people in the media, like the uh, pundits who would then Ugh. side with other things. Anyway, build up to one thing. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Carry on. Creating chances in the midfield is another thing. You can see it's a work in progress and I can see that they, they are getting better, but it depends on who they're playing against. Like Spurs press with the front two, so it's not the same. Uh, Chelsea, what, what was their pressing structure? Was it Chelsea two? were quite passive actually in the in the first phase as well. They they were doing the thing that they they did against Milan, which is they have a front three, but their their forward is on the pivot player rather than on the back to encourage them a bit. Yeah, so you get you allow them the ball and say we're not going to give you any space in midfield, but because we don't think you're going to be dangerous enough dangerous enough from the back line to cause us problems. So, I mean, I'm still thinking about the five aside team where you don't enjoy it because one player is just going off and doing their own thing all the time. But there we go. I like to tie everything up, obviously, with uh, with no loose ends. So Chelsea won the Premier League title in 2017, I think it was. Uh, who finished second that year? That Norwich. A, a Con- Conte. No, <laughs> I think it was Norwich, yeah. Might have yeah, been it's Norwich. Norwich I'm pretty seventh, sure. I think Norwich might have been seventh. Uh, it was Spurs. So there we go. That's exciting. Uh, and also, uh, Steve has returned from his uh, from his investigations. He says, after an extensive trawl of social media, apparently Thomas Tuchel appears to be in the southwest of India, in the Kerala region. I was going to say that. Oh, you should have done that, John. Um, the state fruit of Kerala is the jackfruit, a tree in the fig and mulberry family. Uh, it tastes sweet. Basically, imagine a massive fig. There you go. I've had jackfruit. It's lovely. It's really good. Really good meat substitute. Jackfruit. Yeah, that's true. There yeah. you go. And I've been to Kerala, which is lovely. No one cares, but I'm just sharing that information. I care. I, I Thanks, care. John. I, I, it's know, just nice not being bullied by Joe, you know, so I'd like to make the, the host feel well. If only I had called you lovely at the start. <laughs> uh, right, more football after what this is, which is going to be a break. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, it's Kate Borsay, Lindsay Hooper and Hayley McQueen here, otherwise known as The Offside Rule. We have a very special show. It's been 10 years of The Offside Rule. If you've been enjoying it over the last decade, you can get some extra insight. Yes, we have a really good chat about how the industry has changed in the 10 years and chat as well about some of the highs of recording a podcast as an only female trio in the football world and some of the lows as well. So join us for fun. 
We're also joined by Harriet Drudge and Laura Williamson from The Athletic. So check it out. That's The Offside Rule. That was the break. We're just carrying on. Um, so we're going to carry on into this match, which is Leeds United 2-3 Fulham. Where speaking of managers who are massively, uh, <laughs> this isn't going very well, whose fans love them. That was supposed to be a joke, but it doesn't work <laughs> because I paused on it. Anyway, Jesse Marsh is still Leeds manager. I believe so. But this wasn't very good, was it? Losing to a newly promoted team at home. I don't, don't know what that's like. That sounds great. I mean, we lose to everyone these days, so they're not special. You're not special anymore. Yeah. Poor Leeds. Yeah, poor Leeds. And um, it's funny, isn't it? The, the, the high was very swiftly followed by the low. So beating Chelsea 3-0 has been followed by a very poor... Oh gosh, yes, that happened, didn't very it? ...very poor run of, of form where there's been no win since. So why, how do you go from being that good to that bad? And why does no one like Jesse Marsh? Well, I mean... I should just say, by the way, I was at Bramall Lane on Saturday covering Sheffield United 2-2 Norwich City. What a triumph of championship football that was. And, uh, you know, there's a few people who are obviously you know, nearby in Yorkshire... And they were Leeds fans and they were, you know, talking about Jesse in reasonably derogatory fashion. It's, you know, likening him to other American characters and, you know, time to go. And that was before bit, they'd lost, I think. There's definitely a little bit of xenophobia with American managers coming in because they just don't sound right for the... Like, I think a lot of people don't like managers because the way they look, they don't look like football managers. I think that really happens. Oh, what does a football manager look like, JJ? Um, I think in England, it's... <laughs> um, Someone who looks very British. Excellent. Well, just, oh, this is a I, don't mean, I don't mean everyone. Down. I mean there's certain people. There's, def- there's definitely, I'm not saying this is actually what people think, but I think subconsciously there's a certain thing and certain elements of certain media and in fans who will want someone who looks like the way they think they should look or who sounds like the way they should sound. And Americans, they don't get, they don't, they call it soccer, that sort of thing. They, well, yeah. they do. Because yes. Jesse Marsh, he's a great manager, John, isn't he? Cool, that's a good question. Um, I mean... Quicker, John, quicker. It, it depends what you like, I guess. But uh, there, there is this joke about me not liking Jesse Marsh, but very much my issue is with the play style that Leeds have. And um, yeah, interestingly, if you look at the, the, the games we've played well in this season, two of them have come against Chelsea and Arsenal, who are top six sides. Uh, if not top four sides this season, which doesn't seem to make much sense. And then you watch them against uh, sides that we should be beating, as you mentioned, like a, a newly promoted side. We struggled against teams that were, I mean, Aston Villa were at rock bottom when they played against us and we were lucky to come away with a point from that one. And yeah, so much of this just comes down to the play style. So the the issue with, with the Red Bull style of play that, that Jesse Marsh uses is that um, the the focus is not on possessing the ball, so much the focus is on being able to generate dangerous chances through counter pressing largely so you don't the, the idea being you don't need to hold the ball get it into those dangerous areas from the back what you do is you move the ball into dangerous areas either you go direct and try and score or you wait for the ball to break down win the ball back quickly and then hope to exploit the chaos that ensues. Well, that should be fun to watch. That should be really fun. Yeah, in, and in theory I suppose it is and that's why when you play against teams like Chelsea and it works out the fans are, are excited about it. But then when you come up against teams who refuse to actually try and um, build up in those kind of areas where you're going to press the ball back, it just becomes very sludgy very quickly. So, so is it more fun to watch than when a team like, say Spurs are really sitting deep and not being engaged? Um, 
I suppose I suppose it depends what you enjoy about football, right? Um, oh, this is. I don't know. It, 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 this is what we're talking about, though, right? It's yes. It's, 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 it's the aesthetics. It's, oh, aesthetics. That, that's the noise. Aesthetics. I don't know what aesthetics. Aesthetics. Yeah. Okay. We all know what I mean. We do. Um, and also, um, on that note, uh, it's a, oh, a lot to do about with what. Um, the perceived way of the club is. Hmm. I think there's some pun. Uh, I can't remember who said it. But they're talking about this is not really the Tottenham way. I think, what is the Tottenham way though? I'm not sure what that is. And there's always the West Ham way. I've never been sure hmm. exactly what that is. The Spurs is what's the what's the line? Uh, football is about glory, right? So the 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 Spurs approach is supposed to be really flamboyant football. Like right. If you lose at the end, you're like, oh well, at least it was glorious. So I guess that's not what's happening. Is with that glory? Well, they seem to like the Pochettino era mm. lots of Spurs fans so like a lot of people really like that but they were successful during that period and I wonder whether because I saw them a few times live and I'd never thought they were that entertaining but lots of people told me that otherwise they just saw some stuff other games I haven't seen where they were really good to watch but it seemed like a bit of a mid block and things like that but Leeds whenever I've seen them it seems quite chaotic and therefore I might be able to invest myself more into that I think it's it's definitely entertaining if you're a neutral I think when you're watching it as a fan, it very quickly gets old, especially because <laughs> right, yeah. like the, the high the high points of, of playing against a team are trying to build up against you and you're causing them problems and it's an Arsenal or a Chelsea and you can be like, look, we're, we're holding our own against a big team. That's fine. But no one else is trying to do that. Everyone else, I mean, even, so Crystal Palace tried to do that a little bit in the first half against us and they, they, they were lucky to go in at 1-1 at half time. But in the second half, they, they sort of dominated us by being a little bit more direct, playing over our press and getting the ball into dangerous areas where they could cause problems problems and and we ended up losing that game so it's frustrating as a fan because you 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 want to I, th- I think when you're a team like Leeds in the situation that we're in which is we just come from a season where we nearly went down you want to feel as though you can beat the teams around you rather than cause problems for the teams who you're not ne- you're not you're happy to like the free hit games right I, f- I feel this is an issue with Leeds isn't it that you know they finished 13th I think two years ago and they had you know Rafinha and they finished Kelvin ninth Phillips was it ninth even better. Uh, you know, say, was it ninth? As though the difference between thirteenth and ninth isn't glorious. No, you need glory. to watch some Spurs, mate. Football is glory. <laughs> Football is ninth. Um, yeah, uh, Leeds. Um, yeah, they, they did that with Kelvin Phillips and Rafinha, and then Phillips didn't play a lot last year because he was injured, and now he's sold. And then Rafinha is sold this summer, and the players they brought in are sort of for the style that Jesse Marsh wants. But are they actually any better? So. Why would they then suddenly improve? Why would they not regress by taking the better players out of the team and away you go? Yeah, it's a play style thing. So the big question is, can this play style succeed in the Premier League? And my gut feeling on this has always been no, because there's two different things. On the one hand, like the teams that you're trying to press against usually are going are gonna to be good enough to beat you anyway. So Arsenal beat us. We played better than them and and they beat us um there are also teams who are just going to be able to play through the press anyway and and not be bothered by it at the other end i think and i mentioned this before the premier league is such a a moneyed league that teams just don't want to get knocked out of of the the of the league because then you lose a lot of revenue right so i think at the bottom of the premier league teams are just happy to sit in and uh, and get a draw and and that is causing problems to Leeds at the moment because those teams are refusing to engage in that kind of counter press or, or allow that kind of counter press. They're just going long over the press into the space behind. And if you're playing that kind of aggressive counter press, you have to push everyone up the field. You create space in behind. It's also very um, ball dependent, right? So if the ball's on one side, all of your players are on one side. So you create space on the other and that can be exploited as well. And it's that's what's killing us right now. Is it not Simples. to do with like chance creation as well? So... so it- 
the way I see Leeds is that a lot of the play, they, they try and force play through the middle. So I always think that, I, I kind of agree with that, the best chances are if you can create through the middle. And like City use their wide players mostly as a diversion or to create width in the middle for wide players. That's what they do. They don't really score from crosses out wide. It's through the middle. So if you just maximise your chances of putting through the middle, you do that. Jurgen Klopp's theory is that uh, better than having a number 10 or some sort of playmaker in midfield, you create chances through creating chaos. So there's turnovers. People are not in their correct defensive shape and that's who you create. So if Leeds have a weaker team and squad than other players, having a defined playstyle for me kind of makes sense uh, when you want to do what he's doing. But the problem is, obviously, when it doesn't work, then to play that kind of that kind of style, you need to be really intense, aggressive, and probably confident that it's going to work to make it work. And when you don't have those ingredients, then the thing sort of falls down. But he said that uh, after the game that everyone at the club's aligned, the board, staff, players. I mean, he probably would say that. But United. Yeah. Everyone's united. Although he didn't mention the supporters. Leeds United. Yeah. yeah. Well, did he, well, I don't think he said supporters. He said, no. uh, he said yeah. That I think he would be a bold man to suggest that the, the, the fans are behind him right now. Um, I agree with you. Um, I think part of the problem, again, is that when you're playing that style where you're going to go really direct and you want the ball to, to sort of fall out in those central areas, what you want is space for the opposition to have to then defend backwards so they're running back towards their goal. And I think a lot of teams now against us will sit just to sit a little bit deeper and they can just step step forward into those those more direct attacks and just don't think it causes as much problems in that way as well. So, it, and the, yeah, I suppose the big question then is is that if your whole play style is built around counter-pressing and teams aren't going to let you do that, then what's left? Yes, Jesse, figure it out. Uh, nice to hear you say uh, us there, John. <laughs> Jesse Marsh has 11 losses from his 23 Premier League games in charge. Uh, six wins, I think, is the six interesting wins. bit there. Six wins from 23 six games. Six wins out of 23. Yes, I've failed to pick the interesting <laughs> bit. Right. Still, 11 defeats is a lot, but you are right. Jay Lots Jay. of goals <laughs> against. 23 <laughs> games, 37 against, so 26-4. That points to it and maybe not working the way you want, right? Yes. Agreed. Uh, Fulham, if we were to talk about athletics, should we talk about <laughs> Fulham? Do they have an aesthetic? Uh, they're seventh. <laughs> and they seem to be playing nice stuff. That seems to be a, that's, that's Steve's bold claim there. They're playing nice stuff. They do have an experienced team and the manager knows what he's doing at this level. I mean, they'll be fine, won't they? Let's just say it. They'll be fine. They're going down. You're fine. Good luck to you, Fulham. Yeah, I think when you're a team like Fulham, when you come up, you just need to sort of be solid, right, in your first season. Make sure you've got decent structure. I think Marco Silva's a fine manager. I, I'm just looking at the underlying numbers now, so I have a feeling that that maybe they maybe are overperforming slightly. Yeah, they're in the bottom three according according to expected goal difference, but by expected goal difference, leads are mid table. So. What do the expected numbers actually know? I'm going to reel myself in then. None of this matters. Maybe Leeds won't be... uh, Leeds, maybe Fulham won't be fine. Maybe Leeds will be fine. All will be (laughs) revealed in the coming months. Uh, Right, well, that's those ones. That's exciting. Uh, I mean, one team that did sack their manager was Aston Villa. Aston Villa 4-0 Brentford. What what do we think Stephen Gerrard was doing at the weekend? (laughs) When this result came through, JJ, where, where did you imagine... Stevie G being uh, Liverpool yeah. he's always Liverpool <laughs> when he was at Rangers he was always in Liverpool hmm. um, like a nice bar a cafe I don't cafe know, just, bar just probably at home with his family to be honest I mean, that is, that's a nice idea yeah, yeah. I guess that's what he does that's nice he's but, in uh, a pub with Graham Soonis reacting to this result yeah 
watching Soccer Saturday. Anyway, yes? Well, Stephen Gerrard had a very defined style of play at Rangers, uh, which was informed almost entirely by Michael Beale, who was doing very well at QPR and just turned the Wolves job down. Michael Beale... <laughs> and the village job, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he turned the village job down. So. Uh, yeah. Michael Beale knows his... He kens his tatties, which means he knows his potatoes. Uh, and he is doing very well at... Yeah, at QPR. But waiting for his time to kind of shine. Gerard has the star appeal, attracts players. Uh, obviously, people want to play with him. They want to be coached by him because he's one of the best players the Premier League's ever had. One of the best players in Europe, like of his generation, certainly. But his team at Aston Villa, I mean, it's a hard job to take on because the expectations are so high and they're kind of limited to what they did. They spent a lot of money on players. The key ones that you signed are not available, they're injured, so that's a real problem. Diego Carlos, he sent, that was a big signing. Defender was going to make them much better, much more reliable, to re- basically replace Tyrone Mings in the lineup. Mings has made about two mistakes in the last three weeks that have cost them goals. And you see, that's the kind of thing that might make a big difference. So maybe if he just like force quit the game and started again, he might be able to get better results and they'd be better up the table. football manager reference. I was thinking I might start with the Aston Villa game this season. Yeah, I've got the, I've got the beta for, Aston, for a football manager. Anyway, but here, so the, the shape he plays or the structure is always a 4-3-2-1. So like, teams tend to... The, 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 the trend or like just what everyone kind of does is whatever shape you play, you end up in something like a 2-3-5 or a 3-2-5 in your attacking shape. That's what you end up. And it's all to do with like, where do you want to win the ball back? Where do you want to create from... Uh, where do you think the most valuable places to score are from and what players do you have? What can you do with them? Gerard has an all-right team. Like That's a mid-table team, I'd say, he's got at Aston Villa. But he was playing them in that 4-3-2-1 with two narrow players behind the striker. They're meant to go wide and then they rely on all the width coming from the fullbacks. It's the same thing that at Rangers. It's one of the reasons at Rangers he had Barisic has provided more assists than any human has ever done and James Tavernier was top scorer by about 80 goals because they were always feeding each other from crosses to deep the, the back post relying on the width from those players there and then the other players at the top that were working around. Then you've got your three that protect the two behind them. The two very much the central defenders don't have to be able to do too much special with it and the three would work to win the ball back and keep them up the pitch. And it's kind of... This Villa team is boring to watch. I think it's really boring. You, you did a thing for us. I it? did do a thing and I pretty much said that for eight minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but in Venice, Aaron Danks comes in, he gets two days, Change changes it. the formation and boom, it's everything's fine. A simple, like basic, uh, previous meta FM formation of a 4-2-3-1. You play the two wide players wide and you've got Leon Bailey, great winger, you play him wide, you can come inside his right foot. You play Bundia through the middle, who's That's the one. a great player. Coutinho's just not in the team. I like just Bundia. do that. I like yeah. Bundia as well, just done mate. that. Stevie. Yeah. Carry on. And, that's, and then Watkins plays wide, right? But you can get in the middle because then you get Mighty Cash overlapping. Just very basic things they've done here. Did not expect a 4 0 <laughs> against Brentford. I mean, but dare I say, uh, Stevie probably was hoping to play Brentford at home. I don't know. For a new manager, uh, not a new manager bounce, but you know, a managerless side, that's a decent. Fixture. I mean, so much of it is accidental and, and luck, and you need things to go your way sometimes. But what it often seemed under Gerard was that, uh, maybe you agree with the research you did for this, was that. It, he depends on individuals to create things for him rather than the system creating things itself. So he gives his, he gives his players a bit of a, a cushion to allow for turnovers and stuff like that, but he tries to keep it quite quiet. And he would often have only four players in the attacking third. When he played the diamond with two up top, like like playing that one quite a lot as well, um, they didn't really create anything that was that fantastic. It was very rigid, No, not an awful lot of movement, just relying on big players to create things. And uh, I'm not saying this is at all what Gerard's doing, but... 
I mean, he was a, like an amazing player. And it's not always that those players are able to get across the things that they instinctively did that made them so good. And then if you try and coach them on the training ground, you can make them form their own solutions to certain situations. But when it comes to actual games, if you don't have the players of the likes of Liverpool and Man City, then those things don't happen. Those individual bits of magic don't happen. So that Real Madrid won the Champions League playing a very, what's the word? Not diplomatic. What's the word when you... Dogmatic? No. Uh, uh, pragmatic. Pragmatic. Pragmatic, <laughs> pragmatic <laughs> approach. Pragmatic approach. That right. was forward from the start. Got Emmanuel Matic. Matic. Yeah. <laughs> Eman, uh, Matic. And they, play all, they don't have to have all the ball, but they win with moments of absolute magic from individual players that are relying on. And Gerard often says, oh, I need more from these individuals and step up and deliver. But if they're not being given the platform to score those things, it just falls apart. And the, the Villa fans clearly lost their uh, connection with him at some point along the way. Was there Steve sneezing in the middle of there? I hope that audio came through. All right. Uh, well, um, expect, expect that uh, that uh, rate of improvement to continue for Villa. It's the only logical assumption. Oh, eight nil next week. Yeah. Well, maybe just one goal at a time. Okay. Uh, Leon Bailey was absolutely delighted. And um, listening to him after the game, he's like, "Expect big things now. We've got loads of freedom. Off we go." So there you go, Leon. Do that. Right. Let's have another break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That was another break. Ooh, Southampton 1-1 Arsenal. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about Arsenal. Uh, no, so Southampton first. That's exciting. Although I do, I do just want to say that all the all the um, the the idea is that Arsenal have got so many points now that Newcastle in '96 are the only team that haven't won the Premier League from their position of however many points. They have. So they, like, you know, they are on a hiding to nothing from now on, Arsenal. And here they drop two points. So that's uh, the start of that. We should talk about Southampton because Ralph Hasenhutl made a change tactical change to, yeah. uh, after they went to goal down and you know possibly could have been more down and then they sort of claimed a point by creeping back into the game i mean it was, it was still not very like uh exciting well i'd say that i don't know john talk yeah yes. i watched this one with my flatmate henry oh um, hey henry he said it Did was he enjoy the, it he said it was the most boring game he's seen this season oh, from wow. arsenal so he's an arsenal fan um so yeah, that, that, I guess that by way of context. But in terms of like the Hausen Huttle formation change, yes, I, I think that they went from a four four two to like a three five two. Just went a little bit more solid at the back, and I, I think they needed to. In the first half, they were they were pretty open, and Arsenal had a few chances to actually finish the game off. But in the second half, actually, I thought that what happened was that the issue was more with Arsenal. Um, so they, this is something Arsenal, Arsenal obviously are sort of like prototype Man City style team, right? They want to they want to play positional play. They want to dominate the ball. They want to generate dangerous moments through exploitation of space, whatever. But they seem to have an issue like later on in games in terms of game management. So uh, I made a video on Arsenal this week and I, I pointed out that um, Arsenal, I think, in all of their all competitions this se- in all competitions this season, they've not conceded a goal in the first thirty minutes and they've scored ten. In this game, they obviously scored in the first 30 minutes and didn't concede in the first 30 minutes. So that that trend continues. So Arsenal are going into games um, with what we call a a favourable game state. So they're in control of the game. They're a goal up and they they have to sort of see games out. And it's 
transpired that in a, a lot of games, I think in the second half, Arsenal have looked a lot less assured of, of where they're at. So there was a lot of people who had watched the Leeds game where Arsenal had been okay in the first half and then really fell off in the second half. And the big question is like, why is this happening? Why are Arsenal going from a posi- position where in the first half they're dominating the game and then in the second half letting oppositions back in? And I don't necessarily have a good answer for that. But one of the things that I think, um, to, to go back to Manchester City, the illusion that I made there, now one of the things that Manchester City do is that they dominate possession and they force teams back into their own box. Now, sometimes they get hit on a counter and can concede that way, um, but they're always going to be pushing teams back. Whereas with Arsenal, it feels to me that they're not as aggressive they're not as brave at forcing teams back in those moments so they want to retain possession but rather than retaining possession in the opposition half they're doing it a lot more in their own half and this is allowing opposition teams to just step forward a little bit more try and win the ball back in those moments Uh, but also it just means that they're out of their own half for longer stretches and so it just invites more chances for the opposition as well so I think this is something that Arteta is going to have to work on and it's happening a fair bit this season so that was the interesting thing for me about this game like how much of this is to do with Arsenal not having the bravery to possess the ball in higher areas where you're going to be under more pressure and you're inviting the possibility of, a, of a, a goal on the break versus actually trying to hold the ball at the back and then allowing oppositions to press you a little bit more and then losing the ball and then generating chances in that way. I saw it as well a lot with um, Southampton kept them uh, quiet as in they find it hard to get into midfield in the first place so they sat a bit deeper off them. I can't remember if they were pressing high from the start and then falling back but I thought Arsenal were really finding it difficult to get into the midfield and keep the ball there because the way Southampton were setting up was designed to, to block the middle of the pitch and have players wide so they couldn't get through those areas. And then when Arsenal get into that other half, whereas Man City might then um, like play with the tempo and slow it down and get everyone in position so they can then control it, Arsenal would see that as a chance to attack, which, is, which makes sense because that's when you've got a bit of space. If you can get past the press, you've got space to attack. So it's working as well this season. But that's where you, the difference between control and you might see some Man City games, they look a bit boring when they're just playing it about. It's all purposeful to control the, the actual game. But like, yeah, I agree with the first half bit. Second half, I saw I was on a train at the time, so I couldn't see all of this. But I remember what I saw is that Southampton getting really quiet. They struggled to create. And then Arsenal naturally having a, a play very intensive football all season long. They had a game on Thursday, so they had a day less to prepare and recover and rest naturally lost intensity later on in the game and so when you lose that and you're basing a lot of what you're playing around being really horrible to play against naturally you start to lose those things and the goal starts in Southampton's box the goal Southampton score starts in their box the presses doesn't quite work there's a bit of depth between them a bit of space to exploit the ball's played down I think it goes wide but then they play through Arsenal's half and they're outnumbered so they're outnumbered was the problem. They've got the one, two, three, four, five Southampton players versus Arsenal's four at the back when they get into the final third. And then it's really clever movement. Armstrong from left to right. Arsenal's structure is good. They're not getting swapped around too much. You sometimes see Gabriel and um, Saliba, when they're trying to pass off a, a runner to someone else, they, they get split a little bit. They, they maybe get caught in a line when they should be flat. Well, you shouldn't be flat, but you should be, basically you should be in a flat line across the pitch, not up the pitch. Yes. Carry on. And then, yeah. Uh, what? The flat line. Oh, I see. Yes. Like a, yeah. Should we just talk about Southampton now? Yeah, I thought yeah. it was, was, was a good um, buzz. Move on. Yeah. Uh, uh, because, well, <laughs> I don't know how how uh, how much uh, interest they generate. Southampton. I feel a bit sorry for. Them. I mean, it's obviously a good point, but most of the time we we sort of expect Ralph Hasenhutl to be sacked. Yet they stick by him. They changed all his coaches, and they kept with Ralph. They signed lots of really good young players and developed them. 
such as Gavin Bazzuno, who's in goal. He's only 20. I think they signed him from Manchester City, did they? They signed a few from Manchester uh, a City. A few, yeah. Maybe that's the secret. Just sign lots of Manchester well, City. Well, also, did they not also sign one of the Manchester City youth development coaches or scouts or something like that as well, who then went somewhere else? Chelsea. Josh. Is that Joe, Joe Shields? Shields? Yeah. Joe Shields. Their model is buy young and sell high, right? So, and they stick with their manager and mm. they're still in the Premier League. They're, you know, a role model club for others to follow. Yeah, right? I, I think interesting in terms of the fact that they st stuck with Hasenhutl, despite the fact they've clearly wanted to change the way that they're approaching. So they, uh, Hasenhutl came in as a, as a Red Bull style coach. It was all aggressive, generate chaos, counterpress, etc. And this season they've not done that. They, you mentioned the, the, the first line of the press, press was more blocky than it was like aggressive press. And that's been true a lot this season. I think they're a little bit more of a mid-block team. They're looking to possess the ball rather than to necessarily win back through counter-pressing a lot as well. Um, and it's, it seems to work. And, and this is a game where, as you say, like he does make some tactical switches and it does improve things. So I, th I think Hasan Huttle is a, is a decent manager. So good on them for keeping him, I suppose. We also have a result that was well, a big one for fans of English football in the 70s and 80s. This was exciting. There was loads of nostalgia over this, which not many people watching may care about. But nostalgia, all the same, because Nottingham Forest won Lil Liverpool. Lil Liverpool? They, they looked like that. They didn't look themselves. And that's kind of what I'm saying there, obviously, deliberately. Um, oh, Forest changed their formation as well, JJ. Oh, Everyone's some... changed their formation. That's good. Yeah, this is something I was going to look at um, later. Uh so uh, like in more detail because I can give you a very brief thing and that they've changed from playing a back three or back five which is what Cooper has always been playing with Nottingham Forest for the last season to a 4-1-4-1 or 4-2-3-1 and then since they've gone to like a 4-3-3 4-1-4-1 they've got some points <laughs> which is good and they've also beaten Liverpool so this is them playing a 4-1-4-1 at home obviously very decent but I've not seen the full game, so I don't know well, enough the, to tell you. I mean, this I, I saw a lot of it because it was it was on in the uh, press room at Bramall Lane. Oh, um, but uh, I don't really know much about it. But uh, you know, I've, this is classic Steve Cooper result for me. Like, really be you know sort of tight and a bit stodgy, good on the counter. Created some good chances, didn't they? Uh, Liverpool are well, what what are they? They're all over the place. And as, as someone else pointed out, I mean, they had Carvalho. And um, Harvey Elliott in their midfield. I mean, both were playing in the championship last season and two seasons ago. Regardless of how good they are, they're not ready to be doing what Liverpool need yet, are they? Yeah, Liverpool are a funny one because, you know, they, they will beat Man City one week and then lose to Nottingham Forest the next. So big questions about, about why that is the case. I think I'm always going to say they're probably tactical to an extent. Um, when you're a team like Liverpool at the top of the league, teams are, are going to largely play against you in a, in a certain way which is sitting deeper against you and then you've got to figure out how to break down low blocks and that I think that's always been the the issue that that Jurgen Klopp has been trying to to sort out and he's done that by when he first came in obviously he had that the, a really sort of odd midfield and everyone was like how can Liverpool be so good with a with a midfield with like Jordan Henderson and, and, and James Milner in it or whatever or Adam Lallana and I feel as though, you know, they've, they've tried to develop that midfield so they've got more on-ball quality on it, uh, in it. Um, but that does come at the expense of uh, some of the, the more functional stuff that that midfield was doing as well. And I, I suspect, and again, I, I didn't watch this game, but I, I suspect that the issue that we're seeing now from Liverpool is to do with the fact that as soon as one part of your system breaks, everything seems to fall apart. 
so we talk a lot about Trent Alexander-Arnold. We talk a lot about Liverpool's problems in defensive situations and not protecting their back four. And I, th- I suspect a lot of that comes from the higher press not working as well as it did. So um, when you have a higher press, you can you can protect your defence a lot better. And that comes down to ha- having different players in that front line, having different players in the midfield. Um, but the, essentially, I think I think this JJ will agree with me. Like there's lots of little things happening all at once, which means that they are now no longer the greater than the sum of their parts. It just happens sometimes. Like, I mean. You can even look back to Sir Alex Ferguson's Man United team. Sometimes they win the league and then they might have a bit of a drop-off and finish fourth or something like that. Like, it's it's totally normal. And they basically, they came to an end of a cycle and this is probably the start of a new one now. It will take time for them to then become what they're going to be in the future going forward. They'll change, like, the, the age profile of their team is slightly older than it was. He wants to play a, a standard football, a type of football, I should say, that suits a younger team. It takes time to get the new players back in together. You want to maintain the older players in there so you keep the values through and you keep the standards the same but then just little things go wrong like James Milner caught in it uh, not James Milner Alexander Arnold caught slightly out of position or whatever or, or Joe Gomez having a terrible time Matip not being quite there and injuries in the midfield Harvey Elliott learning how to play or how to stop opposition counters he's very good on the ball maybe not as strong enough there he's cha- a change of shape to try and deal with structural issues I think it's just the end of a cycle and then they'll start a new one as well. Like players like, like Sadio Mane leaving is the example of like, that's the cycle ended. One of the key players of it, gone now. What should we expect from Liverpool if they're in, you know, a transitional bit? They'll can they finish in the top four yeah, while transitioning? No, no, definitely. They can definitely finish the top four. I'd expect them to actually. Like, they're still brilliant. It's just that it's, sometimes these things happen where things go against you like this. It happened to him at Borussia Dortmund where things just kept going against you. The underlying numbers, they're all right. Like they're fine. They're going to finish probably top four and they're still decent to watch. You saw earlier that they got absolutely bodied by Napoli in the Champions League um, a little while ago, just torn apart with individual errors and things not working the way they used to. And they, I didn't think they'd start adjusting things as quickly as they have because it's worked so well for so long. But they see that the way they, they set up now is like a 4-2-3-1 and 4-4-2. Both Klopp and Pep Linders are obsessed with Rigo Saki. Like, they absolutely love him. And they, I think Klopp's written theses on him for his, his uh, coaching badges and that. Maybe I'm wrong with that, but they definitely talk about him a lot. I, think he's, I know he studied videos of him and Roy Hodgson. That's who uh, Klopp studied when he was doing his UEFA Pro, I think. Good knowledge. Yeah. And Roy. so, and so then he, and Saki was always like a 4 4 2 kind of like really high press, um, aggressive kind of play. It'll just come together. I think it'll be absolutely fine. Excellent. But, yeah. That's, 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 that's the news. Also, Jürgen's um, press, press conferences and questions are good fun. He's entertaining. He's, you know, he's giving a lot when asked. <laughs> um, it's good. Like doesn't suffer fools lately, does he? He Clark? doesn't. Yeah. Much like me. <laughs> Not in any way like me. <laughs> um, nice segue into Napoli, though, uh, because now we're going to touch on some Serie A, which, as I, uh, as I informed earlier in the pod, is um, Italian. Uh, so uh, Roma nil one Napoli. Now this was, you know, th- there could have been one point between the two sides towards the top of Serie A had Roma won. They didn't. Jose's Mourinho, Jose's Mourinho's team lost <laughs> to Napoli, who are awesome. I love them, especially Javitza Cavaratskelia. They're one of the most fun teams to watch. Oh, Thanks. I nailed it. Just now, Napoli. They are, aren't they? They're so much fun. Which They're I said really last fun. time I was on this podcast. I just haven't moved on. Sorry. Yeah. Let's talk about how fun they are, shall we? Oh, oh. I mean, apparently Rangers are playing Napoli in midweek. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry, shouldn't laugh. Uh, Wednesday game. That's going to be very difficult for them. They're not playing very well either. Just now, and Giovan Broncos in a bit of trouble. But on, on Napoli, they're absolutely brilliant. Uh, Luciano Spalletti is the manager. 
really, really influential Italian football. Has managed a lot of teams. He managed Roma twice, I think, didn't he? He certainly managed them once. Oh, I think it was Maybe a twice. I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, doesn't matter. Anyway, he was the one that got rid of Francesco Totti, so they don't like him there. That is one thing. But he plays really nice football. And But Napoli, what I like about them is it's, I think it's to do with controlling the tempo of games. Like They don't always go full at it all the time. They sort of lull you in and then go, 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 and then bring it in. It's like taking advantage of exact moments of when to exploit bits of space you've taken in. And they were patient in this game. And it wasn't until about 75 minutes when... Mourinho, having seen out the first 75, allows his team to push up a little bit more. That's when they finally got the goal, which is an absolute pinger, by the way. What a finish. Yeah. But yeah, I've, I've enjoyed watching them heaps. It was good fun. Yes. <laughs> Don't know if I've got anything else. Anything else? Yeah, I, th- this was a, I found this an interesting game. Um, Roma, weirdly under Jose Mourinho, have got really good numbers in the last couple of seasons. Um which is not what we necessarily associate with, with Jose Mourinho. So I expected this to be a quite close game and I thought Roma did a good job of, of keeping Napoli quiet because, as, as JJ said, like Napoli have just destroyed teams this season. And yeah, I just found it, found it a, a pretty pretty fun fun game on, on the back of that. Doubling up on that game um, in Kvartskilia on the... So this, this boy, what's his first name? Kvartskilia. 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 Is a Georgian winger. Um, he's, he's right-footed, but he plays on the left wing. He's absolutely brilliant. But he does things... He's got that thing that really good players have where they play against the flow of time. Now, bear with me what I mean this, but like, what you normally have is someone will take a couple of steps and then that's the natural point where you would execute a pass or you would then start your dribble or something like that, almost like it's an animation in a video game. But he plays outside of that. So he does little things that you know he's going to do them, but he does them just a tiny split second before. So like, someone will close him down and he puts the ball through their legs or just other side of them and then skips past. Like He always knew that he was in control of the situation, even though he shouldn't be. And there's things he's doing where his decision-making isn't always perfect. He'll take someone on the outside when he never should. Uh, but he's a player that he would suit. Like I could see him being at Man City or something in the future. It'd be perfect for the way that Guardiola wants a winger one v one against the player in that wide areas. And he's one of the reasons that Napoli are so good this season. He's scored more goals than the other player in the team. Key for assists. He takes their penalties now as well. But they've got some great players in there. Zielinski's a great player. Really fun to watch. A central midfielder. Well, he's an attacking midfielder. And I think Spalletti's shape it changes from being a four three three to four two three one at times. They press in different ways. Uh, Zambo Anguissa, who was useless at Fulham. I mean, I'm just been saying that to exaggerate, but he was not very good at Fulham. Absolutely brilliant for them. He was missing for the Roma games, got injured. But then they'd bring in another player to cover for him. I think they'd bring in Tongi Ndombele, who's the same exact player as he was at Spurs. Gives the ball away, tries something fancy, gives the ball away. But decent when he's when he's allowed to do things that he's good at, he's really fun to watch. You can see why he's such a highly valued player, but kind of unreliable at that level. But I would honestly put them, I think whoever gets them in the Champions League knockouts, would be really worried because they could beat most teams in the competition. Uh, Luciano Spalletti, he yeah, pioneered playing Totti as a false nine before beating him off. He was at Roma between 2005 and 2009 and 2016-17. Well done. He's also managed Empoli twice, Sampdoria twice, Venezia twice, Udinese twice, recurring theme here, Zenit St. Petersburg once and Internazionale once. That's a lot. And there are others. I'm reliably informed. I, I mean, I, I I thought without knowing anything about Spalletti that he was kind of more sort of successful trophy-wise and, and things than he, than he, he was. He won the Russian Premier League. Let's not forget that. Well, there you go. There's a few Coppa Italias and Super Coppa Italianas in there as well. Done. This, I, just looking at the the lineups now, yeah, you talked about Kvaratskhelia, obviously the real danger man for 
um, for Napoli, but the the way that Roma doubled up on him, so they used the, they basically went with a, a back three, went with a three five two, and then had Karsdorf, who was the the right wing back, and uh, Mancini who's the right um, right centre back. They doubled up on him, and I thought I expected Napoli to maybe make more problems because of that because obviously when you when you are going to double up on a player like that it does open up spaces for you to attack and you've mentioned um Zielinski who's a he's just a very sort of he has very good movement for for uh, a center midfielder and so as you said on paper it looks like a a midfield three uh, but Zielinski can can push forward and and join that forward line it's a good mix Lobotkis sits in as a little yeah six like a Jorginho type player um, and then the, the eight next to him tends to be Angisa who pushes up and they yeah. press really high up the pitch and then they drop deep so they, they, they vary mm. from game to game and they vary within games as well yeah. very uh, hard to predict what they're going to do you can sort of know what some of the players are going to do but then they change it up and they've got interchangeable players like Paul Tano can play wide right Chucky Lozano started in this game a decent player they, they're quite good in fact if you play as them on like FIFA they're all they're quite highly rated players <laughs> yes. it's a good it's a good team that's uh, it. Where you can I played with them to research them. Did you? Yeah. Did you manipulate them all in the right way? Uh, no, I just well, I just used whatever the Spalletti tactics tactics they put in the game are. But uh, I, I mean, I know a lot of commentators use uh, video games to do their research and teams. That helps. It's really good. I'm going wrong. Spalletti had this famous quote about how you don't have systems so much anymore. Like automated systems in football don't work as well. So you have to have players who are better able to interpret space as and when it appears. So I thought because of that, the fact that there was that doubling up on Kvaratskhelia, there would be there would be more exploitation of space. But um, I felt as though. I felt as though um, Roma were sort of like then biased towards that side where Kvaratskhelia was was on. It generated space on the other side, which I didn't think Tange and Dombele was able to exploit in quite the same way. But it, this game could easily have ended nil-nil. I think uh, everyone is rightly praising Osserman's goal, but I thought that Smalling was poor in keeping in keeping him away from the goal and uh, Patricio should probably have done better trying to stop it. So this game could easily have ended nil-nil. and 4,000 miles an hour towards Yeah, I mean, it, 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 was, it was both both of these things, there was a percentage chance that it would happen, but I, th- I thought between That's the two... generally them, how it works. Uh, but yeah, it could have ended nil-nil and I think it would have been testament to, to Mourinho's ability to stop a team like Napoli who are, are very exciting at the moment. All that praise Jose could have won. Go watch Napoli. They're fun. They are on 29 points at the top of Syria after 11 games. That's three points ahead of AC Milan in second. Lazio a third. Level on 24 points with Atalanta. Shall I keep going? Roma a fifth on 22 points. Then it's Udinese in sixth on 21. As are Inter Milan. Well, that's not very good. Who are also on 21 points. And then Juventus at eighth. That's not very good. Juventus are bad this season. They are bad. But maybe they'll be good soon again. Uh, So watch out for that. That's Italy. Nicely rounded up. Uh, In that case, with that done, all that I did want to say was mention that Tifo Talks... Uh, there's another podcast on its way. Uh, I think you can get these on the audio feed. So if you're listening to this on audio feed, subscribe to those audio feeds and then the podcast will just miraculously appear, which is obviously um, underplaying the terribly hard work everyone's gone to. Uh, John, what's next on TIFO Talks? Yeah, so we've just had uh, a number of podcast episodes out. So we had Jonathan Wilson to open things off. We've had uh, an episode with James Montague talking about the World Cup, Justin Kraft talking about uh, Bayern Munich, Jesse Parker Humphreys talking about tactics in the women's game. I might actually not on oh. the episode this week. So if you want to find out more about that, you're going to have to go to JJ, who was on it. Well, that's oh, fortunate. Yeah. Well, we got to talk. So me, Joe, and Seb got to talk to Humphrey Carr, who is um, the very tall, lovely, uh, funny English lad 
from the Welcome to Wrexham documentary. Ah. So he works closely with Rob McElhenney uh, on Mythic Quest, that, that thing. So, you know, very excited to talk to this guy because I always wanted to be a comedy writer. That's what I wanted to do. Here I am. Wow. With a dream job. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I've won, everyone. Uh, why, yeah. why didn't that work out? Oh, because no, I, 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 I got into football. I got into football. I just combined the two. It's just like I had to do comedy I just, stuff. I just had Joe's voice in my head at that point. Can't uh, really it's, it's, um, but, so Humphrey uh, is a writer and actor in his own right, um, but he also became the direct or executive director or something like that at Wrexham. I can't remember exactly, exactly his title, but really important with a guy who has never had any experience doing that. Basically, the eyes and ears of Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney at Wrexham, and he was he's really nice. The interview is very fun to listen to. So. Wow. Well, listen to it That's then. Thursday. Make sure you subscribe. Oh, yes, John. That will also be on the TIFO IRL channel as well. Yes. We filmed it. Oh, excellent. But not all of the TIFO Talks podcasts will be on the IRL channel, so you do need to sign up. Make sure you subscribe. Right, we're done, aren't we? I I have no idea when we started, so we literally could have been in here for four hours, as far as I know. But hopefully it won't be that long when it goes live. Uh, Thank you to the guests. Uh, They were JJ Bull. Yes. And uh, John McKenzie. Also, the lovely, yes. the lovely, the lovely John, John McKenzie. McKenzie. <laughs> uh, thanks to Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hopefully he's still not waiting for us in Germany. Hopefully his gates are okay. Uh, thanks to producer Steve for giving me stuff to say. That's very important. Uh, thank you to producer Jamie, who's over there. I have no idea if you can see him on video. Probably not. He's, he is here, honestly. Uh, Joe will be back next week, I assume, unless he's still in Germany. Uh, is he in Germany? We don't know. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>